Support for On Being with Krista Tippett comes from the Fetzer Institute, helping build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Fetzer envisions a world that embraces love as a guiding principle and animating force for our lives, a powerful love that helps us live in sacred relationship with ourselves, others, and the natural world. Learn more by visiting Fetzer.org. A few years ago, I was invited to do an event in Detroit, a city in flux in an age of flux, on the theme of raising children. The conversation that resulted with the Jewish, Buddhist teacher and psychotherapist Sylvia Borstein has accompanied me from that day forward. Here it is again as an offering for Mother's Day, in a world still in flux and where the matter of raising new human beings feels as complicated as ever before. I remain so grateful for Sylvia's gift of teaching that nurturing children's inner lives can be woven into the fabric of our days, and her insistence that nurturing ourselves is also good for the children in our lives. Nobody tells you that. They don't say when they hear. They say, uh-oh, you know, brace yourself. They say, <laughs> they say congratulations. Because, you know, Krista, it's both. It is congratulations. It's the most amazing thing we can do. To create a new life that comes out with fingernails and eyelashes and all, of, all its fingers and toes, it's an amazing thing. And it's extremely awakening in the sense of knowing how vulnerable we are. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. I spoke with Sylvia Borstein with a live audience in 2011 at the invitation of WDET, Detroit Public Radio, and Metro Parent Magazine. I stumbled across your book about 10 years ago, I think, when I was first having the idea for this show. Uh, her book, That's Funny, You Don't Look Buddhist. <laughs> because Sylvia is one of the people who literally brought Buddhism to the West, to the United States in the 1970s, um, and was Jewish, like a lot of the people who brought Buddhism to the West in the 1970s. A lot of people who we still are, so are household names with Buddhism in the United States. Um, but she's also written over the years about how she has come back to really richly integrate that with her Jewish identity, finding again in Judaism the imagery and poetry and ancestry and continuity that nourish her, that, and that she's also passed on to her children. So when I thought of Sylvia as this wise person, I started Googling to see if you ever wrote about children and parenting and grandparenting. What I found is that in her bio description, everywhere I could find it, she lists herself this way. She has lots of credentials, but it started out, Sylvia Borstein is a wife, mother, grandmother, <laughs> author, teacher, psychotherapist. And I thought, that's it. This is our person. <laughs> Actually, I'm, I'm, happy that, I'm happy that you discovered that. I, uh, I think it's true. I normally uh, describe myself that way. And I find that when people say, uh, what are you proudest of in your whole life? The, it's clear to me that I am most proud of the fact that my my children now, really adults, uh, all of them now, three of the four of them are in their 50s. And <laughs> so that's really yeah. a, a substantial credential. Mm -hmm. And they're all very, very nice people. Mm -hmm. And that is my best. That's what I'm proudest of. And my grandchildren are right. coming along, and they are very good people. And I, I'm so proud of that. That's the best thing. I don't think I've done it. I haven't, certainly haven't done it alone. I've done it with their father, and I've done it with their teachers and with our community. But they are, I think, uh, my most important work in my life. How many grandchildren do you have? I have seven. Mm -hmm. So, you know, one thing that I enjoyed reading in uh, 
I think it was in your book, That's Funny, You Don't Look Buddhist, that you wrote that your father's mother, that would have been your Jewish grandmother, was your first Buddhist teacher, that she used to tell you, where is it written that you're supposed to be happy all the time? (laughs) In fact, you have to know that I grew up in a a post-depression household. Both my parents had jobs, and uh, I'm an only child. I lived with my two parents and my grandmother, who was widowed, my father's mother. And my parents went off to work. So my grandmother did a great deal of the mothering. uh, And she was very, very solicitous so that I remember her as bathing and washing and dressing me and making braids and preparing the kinds of foods that I like. The only thing that she was pretty not moved to respond to was the coming and going of childhood bouts of, I'm not happy, I'd say, but I'm not and she'd say, and that my grandmother was not a learned woman in that sense, but it's a it's an ethnic thing to use that Talmudic turn of phrase. And she'd say, "Where is it written that you're supposed to be happy all the time?" And I actually think it was the beginning of uh, my my spiritual practice that life is difficult. Uh, and then 40 years later, I learned that the Buddha said the same thing, that life is inevitably challenging, and how are we going to do it in a way that's wise and doesn't complicate it more than it is just by itself? So I want to talk tonight about, about that wisdom that you've learned um, and how it might apply to our lives as parents, not just the spiritual lives of our children, but our, how we nourish ourselves, right, mm-hmm. as we are present to them. Um, and as we impart what we want to impart to them. I, I have to say, Sylvia, that uh, you know, you're sitting here and you are so, so calm and, and, and you, you radiate wisdom and your books radiate wisdom. But So it was somewhat comforting for me for you to also describe yourself as a lifelong warrior. <laughs> and, and just talk about how, how being fretful comes naturally. And I guess you talked about that from your own childhood, that your mother was ill. Uh-huh. I had reasons to be anxious as a child. My mother did have uh, what they called in those days a weak heart. She'd had rheumatic heart, uh, she'd had uh, rheumatic fever as a child, and she had as a consequence, uh, 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 she lived with a chronic coronary insufficiency. And I worried about that. And she actually died when I was in my very early 20s. So I've passed more than 50 years now without uh, a mother, and I, 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 I wish I'd had one longer. But... When I was a child, I worried about it a lot. But you know what I found, Krista, that there are people who are given to fretting without a fretful environment. I think it's actually, uh, it's, a, it's a genetic glitch of neurology <laughs> and that it happens for some people and not for other people. Actually, the Buddha said we have one of five genetic uh, fallback glitches when we're challenged. He said some people fret, some people get angry, some people lose heart and all their energy goes and they don't know what to do with themselves. Some people think, uh-oh, it's me. I didn't do things right. It's always my fault. I messed things up. And some people need to be sensually soothed. They think, where's a donut shop? Where's a pizza? Uh, that people had different, different tendencies. It was very, very helpful for me as an adult to learn that because it's completely comes without a judgment. I don't have to say... Uh, I am a chronic fretter. 
uh, I could say, you know, when I'm challenged, fretting arises in my mind, and it's not a moral flaw. Mm -hmm. And it's very good for people who have a short fuse to be able to think, you know, I have this unusual that that naturally arises neurological in me glitch. To this is what mm -hmm. happens when I'm challenged. But uh, to take it as uh, I tell it to people that this is my glitch is I uh, I uh, when in doubt worry. I said it came, it came with the equipment. Uh, I'm also short and I have brown eyes. And, I, and, the, and if I could see that right. in the same neutral, it just came with the equipment, then I don't have to feel bad about it. But I can work with it wisely. It's, that's really the important part. When we see as adults what it is that our fallback glitch is, you can say, uh-oh. Uh, and I think in a certain way, that's a sign of wisdom. When you begin, when a, when a person begins to be able to delineate, this is what happens to me under tension. It's uh, that piece of self-knowledge. It's a piece of self-knowledge that makes a break in between a certain next step and that next step and say, oh, so that when I'm in an airport, for instance, or if I come to a place where I've, I've agreed to meet my husband on a corner of a certain street at 5 o'clock and I come there at 5 and he's not there and it's 5 past 5 and he's not there, I could start to think maybe this, maybe that, maybe this, maybe right, that. Right. But I think to myself, wait a minute, that is just my peculiar neurological glitch kicking in. Probably not. Yeah. You know, I could just wait here quietly. I could look in the windows. I could look at the people. I could say uh, relaxing phrases to my own mind. I could wish well to the passers-by. There are just lots of other things I can do. Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Today for Mother's Day with Jewish, Buddhist, mother, grandmother, teacher, and psychotherapist, Sylvia Borstein. I happened to have the experience of having my first child, my daughter, while I was at seminary, while I was studying theology, which was a really interesting thing to do, to be reflecting theologically and then going through this experience of bringing life into the world. And, but one of the, one of the really strong reactions I had after she was born was realizing that I'd grown up using this language of God as father. Mm -hmm. And that it's not very, we don't reflect on what we mean because this father God who I always thought of was so sovereign, mm -hmm. so powerful, mm -hmm. right? And the experience of becoming a parent is, is one of excruciating vulnerability, mm -hmm. and loss of control. Mm -hmm. um, and to be able to know and that. And this whole thing of worrying and catastrophizing uh -huh. and being fearful uh -huh. gives you all kinds of rich new reasons <laughs> to do all of this. Actually, no, no, it's, it's really a fact. One of the people who, um, a woman who was a, uh, came regularly, I teach, in, I teach at Spirit Rock Meditation Center out in California, and uh, uh, the class is kind of a regular group of people that comes every Wednesday. And a woman came who was uh, pregnant with her first child, and the whole group was looking forward to her having her baby. And she took some time off after the baby was born, and then she came back, brought the baby with her, and she talked about it. She said, you know, when I became pregnant, everybody said, congratulations, great, 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 great. <laughs> and then when I had the baby, everybody said, congratulations, great, 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 great. Nobody told me that I had at the po that point mortgaged 
my heart for the entire rest of my life because my happiness now depends on this baby being well and healthy and nothing bad happening to it. Nobody tells you that. They don't say when they hear. They don't say, uh-oh, you know, brace yourself. They say, <laughs> they say congratulations. Because, right. you know, Chris said it's both. It is congratulations. It's the most amazing thing we can do, as you said, you know, theologically speaking, to create a new life that comes out with fingernails and eyelashes and all of all its fingers and toes. It's an amazing thing. And it's extremely um, awakening in the sense of knowing how vulnerable we are. Mm -hmm. You know, sometimes when you say goodbye to somebody, say, I'll see you soon, and you really actually never know. And it would be grim to think about that all the time. And, mm -hmm. uh, but if I think about that enough of the time, I think this, the, the result of my thinking about that a lot is that I try very hard not to harbor any grudges and not to leave anybody in a not good way and to say I love you as much as I can when I leave people and when I talk to my children or my grandchildren. Uh, I think that's actually the sequela you think about. You have it, the, the, the effect of being aware of how fragile... In fact. How fragile and strange and un unpredictable life is. In fact, in mm -hmm. fact, that, uh, that uh, the, the, the crux of what the Buddha taught is really is realizing that everything passes, including these lives, mm -hmm. and it's uh, it's not uh, it's not a gloomy or macabre uh, kind of philosophy. It's really an understanding about that's what's true, and knowing that's what's true, uh, I, I think we're mandated not to waste any time with enmity or negativity mm -hmm. or grudges. It's so easy to make a grudge list and then nurture it. Um, you know, it's, the world has changed pretty rapidly in this sense as well. Uh, people tend to, you, you'll often have mixed families of one parent is religious, the other is not, or they come from different traditions, and their extended families may have ten different traditions. But then when people become parents, they often still start asking this question, do I want to pass something on, or what do I want to pass on? And um, a rabbi, Sandy Sasso, said to me once that... Um, Many of us, not all of us, have a, a mother tongue, a tradition we grew up in, and we may have rejected that. But she said, don't let your tradition be defined by people who may have ruined it for you. That, that probably is a first place to look. Well, actually, the, the truth about me is I didn't come back to Judaism. I've never left. Uh, uh, many people come back. That's true. I actually never left. I, I had always a very cordial and warm uh, relationship to Judaism. My family was a, a, a comfortably a fairly traditional Jewish family as I grew up. Uh, I, I never questioned that I was fundamentally a Jew in the sense of my native language, as Sandy Sasso would say. I actually was introduced to a couple of meditative paths that didn't particularly speak to me. And then I met my teachers, and I went on retreat, and I was very touched by what they said, and particularly the understanding about the difference between a life inevitably challenged by pain and complications, but free of suffering, that there would be a way to train the mind to not make more suffering out of the inevitable challenges of life. And it just sounded exactly true to me. It made tremendous sense. It was like, phew, someone uh, understands that there's something anxiety-provoking about life, 
And I thought that my private anxiety was mine. Nobody else had it. Mm -hmm. And I thought about becoming enlightened, that if I practiced meditation enough, that the challenges of life and the pain and the disappointments of it would just, I would sail over them with great equanimity. That they, didn't happen. That didn't happen. That didn't happen. I tell, people, I tell people that I could have the most profound equanimity, and I am two words away from losing it completely. And then, then, then they say, what are those two words? And I say, well, you have to understand that first the phone has to ring. Ring, ring, and you pick up the phone, and a voice says, hello, Ma. <laughs> And it doesn't sound right. The complete, com yeah. <laughs> you get that. To the point of our evening. <laughs> because that's a, that's a whole different story. Uh, it's not, but the truth is that we are connected in, uh, with empathic bonds of, of tremendous energy. I wouldn't want it otherwise. I don't want to sail above my emotional life. What I want to, I don't want to complicate my uh, emotions with worse complications by struggling with what I can't change or by reacting without thinking things through. In the beginning, I think I had a more lofty idea of what would happen if I practiced a lot. To become a lot more pedestrian, I'd like to live kindly with a good heart because I'll be the happiest that way. this core insight that, that suffering, and again, we're, we're, we're acknowledging that parenting and is, is the greatest loss of control we ever suffer, right? <laughs> that suffering results from struggling with what is beyond my control. That idea of the, that our minds get in conflict with our experience, and that that's where suffering comes from, not, not so much from the realities themselves, but how we struggle with them. How do you think that applies to this? Well, I, I just was, was remembered, actually, just before we came out here this evening, as I was sitting backstage, I remembered I was on a flight uh, last Friday, and uh, there, were, uh, there was a family of five traveling with me, and everything is progressing well. It wasn't a terribly long flight. Near the end of the flight, the two- or three-year-old she just fell asleep, and now she's awakened, and it's late in the afternoon. It's probably her nap time is way off. And she not only woke up, but she woke up, and she's beside herself and crying and flailing in the way of three-year-olds. And uh, I watched these two parents, and they were fabulous. And her mother was completely just consoling and quietly talking to her, not losing her equanimity at all. And I was marveling at it. I thought it was wonderful. I, you know, sometimes you see much more upset parents. So this parent was not upset. And then by and by, after a little while, the dad over here said, pass her to me. So they changed children, and she passed this one back to him. And then he behind me spoke to her in such a kindly way. And slowly, slowly, she pulled herself together. And I just so admired their parenting skill. I admired it because, first of all, the child calmed herself down. They didn't 
whiz themselves up and create more suffering for themselves. They also didn't create more suffering for the whole plane because, you know, sometimes when a child is getting upset and the parent becomes all upset, right. well, then you feel pulled into it. Right. But somehow these parents' equanimity was like a calming effect around the whole plane. And I thought, well, they were really, at the time, I thought they were really good parents. But I thought the element of their goodness was that they were actually very wise mm -hmm. and that the wisdom involved is this child is two and a half. And that's what two and a half year olds do when they're awakened from a nap in the middle of a loud and rumbling landing. You, you know, that's also an illustration of a distinction you made when you, you talk about something about wise effort. I found this really helpful and I, I feel like that's, that's a story about it. You said in terms of our reactions, the difference, that there's a big difference in any moment between asking Am I pleased? Which, of course, on an airplane, and you have a screaming child, you're, you're not pleased, not you're pleased. embarrassed. <laughs> you, don't, you think you, you will be less disruptive if you can make them quiet as quick. But the difference between asking, am I pleased, or in this moment, am I able to care? Yeah. For the child and for myself, mm -hmm. in a kindly way. You know, here, here's something else you've said that, uh, that's uh, provocative and just so true. Uh, it's not fair, the three words, it's not fair, have caused more trouble than any <laughs> words throughout history. <laughs> but you know, what's interesting about that is it's not fair is also the beginning of our children's ethical instinct. In fact. Um, and to varying degrees, we live with that instinct throughout our lives. No, I think that's a really important point, Krista, that... Um, I think probably people will be able to relate to that, you know, when you grow up in a family and um, uh, in the normal course of parenting, uh, even before the child ventures out in the world and goes to school, there are incidents where uh, they, they need to share with someone or whatever it is, they have to wait in line. And we say, we do this because it's fair. And if you do this because it's fair. And we, we carry on about it's fair because it's fair. And then they go to school and they come home and they say the teacher has favorites. They favor so-and-so and so-and-so over me. And you say, I'm terribly sorry. I can't do anything about that. And they say, but it's not fair. Right. And here you are, the people who have said it's about fairness. And sometimes you have to say, it's not fair. And we can't do anything about it. But in the largest sense, when we as adults occupy ourselves with what's not fair in the world and we take our children with us and they hear and see and, and take part in the expressions of our own generosity, our own kindness, our own social activism. When I think about parenting, I think you said it before about parenting as a spiritual practice. I think as social activism as a spiritual practice. Mm -hmm. I think of voting as a spiritual practice. Um, so how do we help them walk that line between... You know, I remember uh, Sister Helen Prejean, who is a great opponent mm -hmm. of the death penalty, who said anger is a moral response. Right. Mm -hmm. But then you, it's what do you do with that anger? Mm -hmm. This is what you're saying also, that it's not fair is, is, a, is a fundament of, of morality and, and of activism. Yeah. So how do we walk that line between demonstrating that and also helping ourselves and our children live wisely with those feelings and those observations of life's I, unfairness? You know, I, I, I think a lot about that. I remember... I remember my father, who's now long gone, um, hearing me teach about uh, transforming anger into 
uh, and to work in the world doing something. And he'd say, I need my anger, Sylvia. It motivates me to do all the activism that I do. And I said, well, you do need it, Dad. You need it uh, just to let you, to alert you to what needs attention. But you don't need it. You don't need to carry it along with you to keep refueling you. Mm. And as a matter of fact, if it ref- if you keep nurturing the flame of anger, it confuses the mind and maybe we don't respond as wisely as we ought to. That I need the anger as if, if I had 104 fever, it would be a sign that I need to do something about it. And, but then you let the anger... But then you let it... Well, I, I hope that what I do is I recognize the anger as a response actually... On, on a, it's a response, I think, to what I feel underneath it, which is a fear. Things really aren't fair. This is not right that this and this is happening in the world. And I think in response to that fear, which is basic, the, uh, the, the human response is to uh, lash out mm-hmm. at it when something frightens us. Mm-hmm. Do you know what's the easiest example of that? If you come by a door and... Uh, as a joke, someone's hiding behind the door and they they leap out and they say, boo, and you get mad at them for doing it. <laughs> right. <laughs> or you see sometimes, this is a terrible thing to see, you see sometimes a child rushes out into traffic and a parent runs out and grabs it and then hits it. You know, for but you know, what they've done is they've gotten frightened yeah. and then they get angry. So I think that the anger is on top of the fear. And to be able to say, I am frightened because in the world, these unjust things are happening. What can I do? And how can I have a mind that's energized to do something about it, but not, not reacting in anger, but responding in firm kindness? But things need to be different. Things need to be different. About 350 people joined this conversation at the Community House in suburban Detroit, Michigan. And at one point, Sylvia Boorstein led all of us in an eight-minute guided loving-kindness, or metta, meditation. Here's a flavor of that. So you don't have to sit in a special way, but if you want to, close your eyes. And we'll be just take a, two deep breaths in and out, in and out, in and out. Take a long breath in and out. And in again, and out. Feel yourself sitting here. Feel yourself sitting here. Feel yourself surrounded by all these people. Feel yourself, I hope, happy and content. And say, think in your mind, a blessing for yourself. The metta practice, loving kindness practice, always begins with a blessing for yourself. So think for yourself, may I feel safe. Think those words in your mind. May I feel content. May I feel strong. May I live with ease. Think about past the people that you recognize in the world, familiar strangers, all the unfamiliar strangers. 
near and far, all people just like us with lives who want us just as we do to live in safety and contentment, to be able to feel strong, to have lives of ease. Wish for all those people, all beings near and far. May you feel safe. May you feel content. May you feel strong. May you live with ease. Find this whole eight-minute guided meditation in the unedited version of this show at onbeing.org or wherever podcasts are found. After a short break, more conversation with Sylvia Borstein. On Being is brought to you by the John Templeton Foundation. The Templeton Foundation harnesses the power of the sciences to explore the deepest and most perplexing questions facing humankind. Congratulations to the 2019 Templeton Prize winner, Brazilian physicist Marcelo Gleiser. Learn more about his inspiring work bridging science, philosophy, and spirituality at templetonprize.org. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Today, for Mother's Day, Jewish-Buddhist teacher and psychotherapist Sylvia Borstein. This conversation with Sylvia transformed how I think about parenting and helped me realize that the inner work of nurturing ourselves as human beings is not a luxury, but something we do in service to the children in our lives. I think you've said something like um, that you're a measuring stick for how clearly you're thinking is how if you're able to be kind. Oh, I think that, you know, I, 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 I have been talking a lot about kindness in the last few mm-hmm. years. It's such a, in a sense, a humble word when we think about uh, um, spiritual practices, uh, or if I think about 30 or more years ago when I began to be interested in uh, a meditative path, we talked about things like enlightenment and revelation, and kindness is much more humble. But I actually think kindness is what I'd, what I'd really like to establish in myself. The Dalai Lama, when people ask him, what's your religion, says, my religion is kindness. And I think it's a word that subsumes uh, tolerance and forgiveness and uh, graciousness and uh, uh, patience. All of those things are kind things. Those folks on the plane were being kind to their child, kind to each other, kind to the whole plane Mm -hmm. by their ability to keep it together. What I like about kindness is that it's doable. And unlike those virtues, like compassion, uh, or even tolerance that you have to cultivate, uh, it can be a lifetime cultivating those things. You can actually be kind to someone even if you don't feel especially compassionate. Or it can be an act. It's an act, and I think it's on the way to actually genuinely being compassionate. The way, I, the way I keep thinking about it, Krista, is when I'm kind in any circumstance, 
whatever, someone cuts in front of me in the <laughs> You're going with a basket in the supermarket yeah. and someone zips in right in front of you <laughs> and you only have two items in your basket anyway, so they could have not. <laughs> so your mind thinks a thought. and But when my mind thinks a thought like that, or they shouldn't have done that, in that moment I'm complicating my own mind with my own negativity, which I'd rather not do. But if I could catch myself to that, and instead think to myself, who knows, maybe he's late for some place, maybe he really needs to be, maybe this is urgent, may he be well, may he get there in a good shape, may, may he live happily, then I don't really mess up my own mind. And I don't, I, you know, I arrive, so I'm two minutes later in the supermarket checkout. So I've done myself a kindness. And the, the, the wisdom, I think, that comes from not upsetting the mind is you never know. I really don't know where that person is going. And you never know whether it's good to go out now or two minutes later. Maybe, you know, who knows what traffic he'll get into or I. Just to not fight with the moment. Mm. There they are. Why complicate it? I think we're in the habit of doing that a lot. And I suppose we model that for our children then in and they become like that, too. How, do you have thoughts about uh, passing this kind of idea, this kind of teaching on to children? And even as I say that, I realize that probably the best way is to be like that. I remember my daughter, who's 17 now, she, start, she said to me the other day, so is this one of those do what I say, not what I do things? Right? <laughs> um, but do you, do, you, do, you, do you, so I assume, I assume you model this, but do you talk to your children or your grandchildren about kindness? About this kind of, I, I think it probably comes up in the in the conversation from time to time. I don't bring it up as a you know as a as a sermon, but uh, I, I think by what we respond to, and what we nurture, that's really what grows in our uh, in our children. Uh, one of my friends has a, a story that he likes to tell, which I've heard now as a, a Native American story. I've heard it as every kind of a story but as a wise grandfather saying to his grandson, or it could be a wise grandmother saying to her granddaughter, I have two wolves in my heart. One is loving and one is uh, vicious. And uh, they're at war with each other and the grandchild saying, which is gonna win? And the grandparents saying, the one I feed. So uh, I think our children learn to speak in, in a tone that we speak in or to hold people kindly if we do. Um, I had in my mind, I wanted to tell us that. I've never said it in a public audience, but I just thought about it recently. I decided that, uh, I'll find out soon if this is a good analogy, but uh, I was thinking about the GPS in my car. It never gets annoyed at me. If I make a mistake, yeah. it says, recalculating. <laughs> and then it tells me, you know, make a make the soonest left turn and go back. If I, if I, I, I thought to myself, you know, I, I should write a book and call it Recalculating. <laughs> because I think that that's what we're doing all the time, that something happens, it challenges us. And the challenge is, okay, so you want to get mad now? You could get mad. You could go home. You could make some phone calls. You could tell a few people you can't believe what this person said or that person right. said. You could go, re indignation is tremendously seductive, you know, and to share, you know, with other people on the telephone yeah. and all that. So to not do it and to say, wait a minute, the, the, apropos of you said before, wise effort, 
the Tassady itself, wait a minute, this is not the right road. Literally, this is not the right road. There's a <laughs> fork in the road here. I could become indignant. I could flame up this flame of negativity. Or I could say, recalculating. I'll just go back here. Well, this is an example of technology instilling us with spiritual disciplines. Oh, I think we it's We find good. so much to criticize. And no matter how many times I don't make that turn, mm-hmm. it will continue to say, recalculating. <laughs> the tone of voice will stay the same. That's so, good. I think it's a good analogy. <laughs> Krista Tippett, and this is On Being, today with the warm and wise Jewish-Buddhist teacher and psychotherapist, Sylvia Borstein. Sylvia, I want to ask you, to this question of raising uh, children, human beings who are kind, who have a heart for the world, in a, in a world that's troubled. When you and I met on a panel in Southern California two years ago, you told a story about uh, leading uh, mindfulness teaching sessions. And you told a story about, I think it was a man who at the end of it said, I'm, I'm frightened to go back out into the world. I feel so vulnerable and in here I'm safe but I don't know how I can be out in the world and be vulnerable. And that story came back to me as I was thinking about interviewing you on this subject, because I think as a parent, there's a version of that that goes through my mind. How much do I expose my children to? Um, how, how do I teach them to be kind and open to the world's pain and vulnerable, and yet I want them to be safe, and I, and I actually want them to be tough out in that scary world at the same time. Talk to me about that. You know, as a child is growing up, inevitably they live in the world and they'll hear about things. If they live in a house that's uh, relatively peaceful and uh, we have a certain amount of control as parents about how much the TV is on and what's on on the TV and how much uh, they are confronted by the pain of the world. And you know what I think, since for myself, really, um, I can't, sometimes with the pain of the world seems in, incomprehensible and unbearable to me, but I think if there's anything that balances it, it's um, the wonder at the world, the amazingness of people, how kind they are, uh, how resilient they are, how people will take care of people that they don't know, if somebody falls or someone's in trouble or in a public place, people take care of them. People take care of people that they don't know, that human beings have that ability. I don't think they have to learn it. They don't have to have lessons. I think we're a companionable species. And for the most part, Mm -hmm. every once in a while we meet hermit-type people, but for the most part we're companionable uh, and congenial and we care about other people and we take care of them. So to be able to look at human beings and say, human beings are amazing. Life is amazing. The sun came up in the exact right place this morning (laughs) and celebrates seasons. I think that's a wonderful part of being part of a a group of people who celebrate seasons and birthdays and holy days so that here we are again at another time and another season. 
And uh, there's that great cosmos out there to look at and imagine people up in, going up into space and looking at the stars and our ancestors looked at the same stars. I think that there's a way of, if I, if I keep in myself a sense of amazement, I tell my grandchildren, look at this moon. It's a three-day moon. It's the best moon. It's better than a two-day moon. A two-day moon is kind of skimpy. You really can't see it yet. <laughs> and a four-day moon, ah, it's already like on its way to a moon. But a three-day moon, it's just beautiful. It's my favorite moon. And if I show that to them, then they begin to think, oh, it's my favorite moon, a three-day moon. <laughs> but, you know, that just happens to be me. I like moons. Everybody will do it in their own way. But, I, you know, I think that always balances it. When, uh, when the Buddha taught about needing to see the suffering in the world so that we could respond with compassion, he also talked about the preciousness of life and the need to take care of it. And I think they're cultivating both. those two at the same time. I mean, that's also something I think our children give us new eyes, especially when they're very little to see the world. Actually, Trent, my colleague, was talking about taking a walk with his son the other day. And I remember those moments when your children are little and it's like everything has been invented for them, that's right? It. Mm-hmm. And they name it. Yeah, yeah. And everything is fascinating. Right. You can look at one flower for a long time because mm-hmm. it's amazing mm-hmm. when you start to do that. Mm-hmm. I have a friend who at, who ends all of her emails. You know where you have an automatic signature and you push your automatic signature? Her automatic signature says, stay amazed. And I love that. So this, kind of, this is also making me think about how we, we need to be attentive to what our children can teach us as well as what we want to impart to them. Because some of this they know, and they actually know more immediately than we do because we mm-hmm. lose it. I remember watching something terrible on the news the other day, and my daughter said, so many beautiful lives in the world, and this is what they focus on. Well, you know, uh, I think the beautiful and wonderful lives in the, in the world, I, you know, I certainly am not a sociologist of journalism, aren't as compelling images right. as the others. They don't make good headlines. They don't make good headlines, yeah. you know. It'd be wonderful. <laughs> I don't know if it would be commercially viable if there were a channel that had all the wonderful things in the news know. about I, the It's hard to make good news <laughs> sexy. It is. I think about this a lot as a journalist. Somebody could do that. Some entrepreneur could figure it out. Maybe. But you know, but I, I think it's like kindness. It, it's the stuff of moments. But it's, it can be absolutely transformative in mm-hmm. moments. And these beautiful lives are transformative in moments. Mm-hmm. But, but, but we, have to, we have to train ourselves to look for them. You know, there were two things that you just said. One of them is that when we are really paying attention, which is what mindfulness is, we really, we really connect with other people. You know, lots, lots, of, lots of times, I think, for reasons of rush or whatever, even with our own children, we're not completely there. I have a friend whose um, grandchild said to him, uh, his grandchild, with whom he spends a lot of time, said to him, uh, he was visiting and staying at the house and doing whatever. He said, Grandpa, do you love me? I said, I, of course I love you. Uh, uh, don't you? You do know that, don't you? He said, yes, you know, but I don't feel it when you aren't paying attention to me. Mm-hmm. So uh, there is something about... Really yeah. paying attention. What what seems most clear to me 
is that children pick up what their parents live. My friend Jim Finley, who's a Christian contemplative psychotherapist, said, uh, I learned to pray uh, sitting next to my mother in church. And what I understood from him is that he didn't learn the words of the prayer. He learned the feelings out of her body as she sat there. I, I think that children learn that from us when we bless them in a natural way, if it's part of our way. Um, then they, 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 they feel all right about it. Uh, <laughs> we used to have certain kinds of blessing uh, rituals in our family that well, we still do. But uh, at, the, at some point, I elaborated on them. So we'd finish a blessing, like the blessing at the end of the Sabbath. And then I'd say, uh, and now everybody kisses everybody. And they all did it for a certain amount of years <laughs> until, until my eldest grandchild, at some point, we finished the ritual. And I said, now everybody kisses everybody. He said, I don't think everybody does this in their family. <laughs> so, I, he, you know, he, all of a sudden he didn't want to kiss his girl cousins, I think, you know, so. <laughs> but the kissing is extra, the, you know. The <laughs> blessing is blessing. <laughs> Spirituality doesn't look like sitting down and meditating. Spirituality looks like folding the towels in a, in a sweet way and uh, talking kindly to the people in the family, even though you've had a long day, or even saying to them, listen, I've had such a long day, but it would be really wonderful if I could just fold these. I'd really love folding these towels quietly if you all are ready to go to bed without me, or whatever it is. But I, I actually think that Spiritual parenting, people often say to me, I have so many things that take up my day, I don't have time to take up a spiritual practice. And the thing about being a parent who might think of themselves as a, a wise parent or a spiritual parent doesn't take extra time. It's enfolded into the act of parenting. You, are, you fold the towels in a sweet way. It doesn't take extra time. So, so Sylvia, one thing... Following on that, loving kindness meditation is also towards oneself, and you share a story in in your writing about um, precisely that. You, you, but you share what you often say to yourself when you're in a moment <laughs> of anxiety. Okay, so I think this is just great advice. I'm going to hang on to this, sweetheart. <laughs> you are in pain. Relax. Take a breath. Let's pay attention to what is happening. Then we'll figure out what to do. <laughs> I, I think that's a fabulous, those are fabulous sentences for oneself and for one's children. Um, it's so, I, I'm so pleased that you found that. <laughs> <laughs> do you know what? It's, it's tremendously pleasing to me because I meet people in some significant number who tell me that they say to themselves in moments of distress, I say, they say, I say to myself, sweetheart, you're in pain. Relax, take a breath. <laughs> I love that. A whole bunch of people out there saying to themselves, sweetheart. <laughs> so I, as I promised, I want to end uh, with a poem. We're going to let Pablo Neruda have the last word. Because you mentioned this in your writing as a poem that you always have with you. And I printed it out and I... I, I think it's beautiful, and I wonder if you'd give that, leave that as a gift for all the rest of us. 
This is called Keeping Quiet. Now we will count to 12 and we will all keep still. For once on the face of the earth, let's not speak in any language. Let's stop for a second and not move our arms so much. It would be an exotic moment without rush, without engines. We would all be together in a sudden strangeness. Fishermen in the cold sea would not harm whales, and the man gathering salt would not look at his hurt hands. Those who prepare green wars, wars with gas, wars with fire, victories with no survivors, would put on clean clothes and walk about with their brothers in the shade, doing nothing. What I want should not be confused with total inactivity. Life is what it is about. If we were not so single-minded about keeping our lives moving and for once could do nothing, perhaps a huge silence might interrupt the sadness of never understanding ourselves and of frightening ourselves with death. Now I'll count up to 12, and you keep quiet, and I will go. Thank you, Sylvia Borstein, and thanks to all of you. Sylvia Borstein is a founding teacher of Spirit Rock Meditation Center in Woodacre, California. Her books include That's Funny, You Don't Look Buddhist and Making Friends with the Present Moment. Chris Hegel, Willie Percy, Maya Tarrell, Marie Sambalay, Aaron Farrell, Lauren Dordal, Tony Liu, Bethany Iverson, Aaron Colasacco, Kristen Lin, Prophet Adewu, Eddie Gonzalez, Lillian Vo, Lucas Johnson, Damon Lee, Suzette Burley, Katie Gordon, Zach Rose, and Siri Grassley. Special thanks this week to WDET Detroit Public Radio and Metro Parent Magazine. The On Being Project is located on Dakota land. Our lovely theme music is provided and composed by Zoe Keating. And the last voice that you hear singing at the end of our show is Cameron Kinghorn. On Being was created at American Public Media. Our funding partners include the Fetzer Institute, helping to build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Find them at Fetzer.org. Calliopeia Foundation, working to create a future where universal spiritual values form the foundation of how we care for our common home. Humanity United, advancing human dignity at home and around the world. Find out more at humanityunited.org, part of the Omidyar Group. The Henry Luce Foundation, in support of public theology reimagined. The Osprey Foundation, a catalyst for empowered, healthy, and fulfilled lives 
and the Lilly Endowment, an Indianapolis-based private family foundation dedicated to its founders' interests in religion, community development, and education. On Being is produced by On Being Studios in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Minnesota.